We're wrapping up a series. I'm Jack. I'm the lead pastor here. And we're wrapping up a series um, we call Gather, Grow, Go today. It's just a short series we do each fall, um, which, through which we like to explore some of the most basic rhythms, or you might say relationships of Jesus' life, the central relationships. And then by proxy, those that in our life, we believe that they, they equip us to just deal with the difficult circumstances that we end up facing. So pandemic, racism, um, family disagreements, politics, all those things, these relationships, uh, the kind of up and out as we, as we center in on those and cultivate those, we believe equip us for God's hope and God's future. So today we're going to, we come to the out relationship, what we call go at Bethany, where we hear the call, um, to reach beyond the circle of close friends, fellow Christ followers, and then offer healing and hope to the wider world. Jesus is always doing this, almost in tandem. You know, always his disciples. He didn't teach in a seminary. He taught on mountaintops and on roads and in villages and in homes. And so he didn't teach in a church. He was sometimes in synagogue, but usually it was on the way that his followers discovered what it looked like to be a disciple. And so the going is really part of the gathering. But uh, in fact, you'll hear a little bit more about that as we talk. But typically for this Go sermon, um, I was the missions pastor at Bethany for several years and was a missions pastor in my previous call, and that's really part of my story. Um, We like to talk about what it looks like for us to join God's mission. You know, I consider myself an amateur missional theologian. We've often talked about what it means to be the presence of Christ in the world. If you know me, I see Spencer smiling like I talk the missional talk, just wax eloquently of it. And and I want to continue that conversation, but there's a question, I think, on the table that's come out of this last year in particular on many of your minds today, many people's minds today, as we come to what it means to be the presence of Christ in the world. And here's the question. It's a hard question too. So this is not going to be an easy sermon. Just forewarning. Um, For what reason do we go? Like, it seems slightly arrogant, maybe even audacious to presume that we, the body of Christ, the local church, the physical and gathered presence, representation of Christ in the world, have anything good to offer the world. In particular, this comes at a time when many Christ followers, and maybe some of you, um, are deeply disillusioned with the purpose, relevance, usefulness of the church, the American evangelical church that Bethany, this expression that Bethany, sort of um, this tradition Bethany stands within. Um, Especially over the last five years, there's this growing ferment of ex-evangelicalism, and maybe you, this groundswell, maybe you identify in this uh, kind of group because of the hypocrisy, the deceit, the false virtue of, that you've witnessed, maybe experienced within the church. Um, and this has been the recent focus for sure uh, of a recent podcast some of you have listened to that came out of Christianity Today called uh, about Mars Hill, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Some of you are familiar with that. I've only just begun to digest it. And it's a very stunning podcast if you've begun to listen to it. And I'll look into the evangelical church and the toxicity at times within the evangelical church and things we can learn from that. And of course, it would be easy for me <laughs> as your pastor, one of your pastors, by the way, a fairly progressive Presbyterian pastor, just telling you right now, if you're new, uh, I don't identify as an evangelical. I, I didn't grow up in the church. And so I find myself here uneasily at times. I just need you to know that about me. But um, it would be easy for me at this moment to also say, well, that's not me. That's not my brand of Christianity. I'm not Mark Griscoll. <laughs> you know, like, 
We're not Mars Hill. It'd be so easy to do that and just walk away. But as we finish this sermon series, I do want to, I think it's faithful. I think it's important to acknowledge, for, for me as one of your pastors and leaders, to acknowledge the loss of trust and uh, the loss of faith in the local church. I want to own that. Um, no matter if it's Mars Hill, and some of you came out of Mars Hill and have experienced wounding from that, um, and great things as well. Great Bible teaching at times. Um, great programs in, for children and youth. But, or that's Bethany Northeast. I think we have something to own in this conversation for sure. Indeed, because much of the church is, is, is just too wed to politics, right? Especially nationalistic forms of politics. Um, we've been xenophobic, non-affirming of people of non-binary sexual orientations. It's, we're deeply segregated today. Probably the most segregated hour in America is 10 o'clock, they say, on Sunday morning. Um, deeply divided on issues of race, class, politics, gender equality. There's just a host of issues. The church, you find yourself in, embedded, we're embedded, we're meshed within. And, and I hear this again and again, Jack, I like you. I want to go with you where you want to go. This missional talk you talk, I like it. <laughs> I want to be part of the God's mission, but I'm not sure I can do that as part of the church anymore. I'm sorry. So what, here's the question, what does it mean for us to participate in God's mission in this world, to go, as God calls us to, when what the church has done, when the church is gone, at times it's been, it does not reflect the heart of Christ. When the church has not reflected the heart of Jesus. And that's what you want to do, right? Uh, many of these evangelical folk that I talk to, some here, say to me, I, I still love Jesus very much and I want to be Jesus' disciple, but I'm not sure that this church or any church really reflects Jesus' heart. I have some questions about that. I also think we as Christ followers, if you identify as a Christ follower, need to think critically about our expression of the church and our role in it. I don't think we should just suddenly walk away from it, you know, because it's, it'd be easy to do so in the particular failures of the church. I also think those failures, we need to confront them. I want to be about changing a culture, not just, not just walking away from a culture because it's broken. There is no perfect church this side of heaven. And you've heard me say that before. And so some of this is about shifting our mindsets when it comes to church. Some of it is about being courageous enough to change the culture of the church. I want to invite you to that with me, with Silas, with John, with Amy and Andrew. Like, let's change this culture. So if you want to be about that shift, and I hope you do, as we continue our journey together, uh, a text that's continued to challenge my thinking uh, and shape the way I've been thinking lately about as we come back to meeting again, is this text before us in First Peter, First Peter chapters one and two? Um, I'm actually <laughs> just a second. I usually have one hand free, so then I can kind of, you know, I gotta have a real Bible, not my application, which I do, by the way, I have an app. So thank you, Sean. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I've got it. It's just gonna get picked, kicked out of the way. First Peter, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 22. It should be on the screen behind me, I hope. Thank you, sir. Now that you have been purified, and I hope you listen to God's invitation to you as part of the church, as a follower of Christ. And we'll break this down in a moment. Now that you've been purified by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love... 
love one another deeply from the heart. You've been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and, the, and his glory like the flower of grass. And it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Rid yourself. Actually, I think I'm skipping those first few verses of chapter 2. Skipping down to verse 4 of chapter 2. Come to him then, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then skipping down to verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word to us. So as we navigate this challenging season, maybe the questions I've posed to you, you're like, wow, yeah, I'm thinking about those in a new way. That's been my experience. Whatever your experience now, as we navigate this season, as we ask ourselves, does the world really need the church? You know, as we think about going, being part of God's mission, does the world really need us? I just want to explore what it means for us to be a community of healing and hope. I think we need to kind of do an internal assessment, a look inward a little bit, assess like, what is our calling? Who are we really to be as we think about going and being elsewhere? And I, by the way, I believe, I wouldn't be up here today if I didn't believe this, that there is a place for us in the world, that there's value for the local. I wouldn't be working here. <laughs> I wouldn't be standing here today. I would have quit. I've thought a lot about that. And, and, and I, but I want to be part of God's mission. I want to be part of God's mission with you, with you all. So as you look at that, uh, we're going to do this by exploring just a few things from this passage. Actually, there's two sets of three things. So there's six points today. <laughs> I'll try and get through this quickly. Trust me. I'm not, for the visitors, like, oh my gosh. But I'll, hopefully these will move quickly. I hope these reframe. There's, there's three things that uh, portraits of community that uh, Peter offers here and that have three corresponding practices. I really wanted to offer practical handles for us as we move into the week and the months ahead. But first, the portraits of community, by which I mean there's this series of uh, these vital, rich metaphors that Peter offers, these images, if you will, in this passage that help us understand what the local church really is called to be and how we're to be, how we're to be. And then those images, like I said, have practices attached to them, okay, that we can consider. So first, the portraits, really quickly. First, the first portrait. Peter calls us citizens of a new kingdom. And you can have your Bibles open because this is going to be kind of a Bible study. So in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So back then, just like today, um, it was a really big deal. What citizen, where your country, citizenship, your country of origin we talk about, where that was, where that was what country you're a citizen of. Paul, for example, talks about this on two occasions in the book of Acts, Acts 16, Acts 22. He's arrested. Um, he's going to be beaten. You know, he might even be executed. Um, as, a, as a criminal. And so he, in those moments, claims his Roman citizenship. Do you remember this? To emancipate himself from custody and uh, continue his work to grow the church. 
And in doing so, what Paul demonstrates, I think, is that your citizenship in the Roman world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, determined your rights, your privileges, your, your ability to move, really, in that world. And that's true today as well. And so here's Peter writing to this motley crew of Christians, new Christians, some of whom are Jewish, some who are Gentiles, some who are Roman, some who are African. They, they were exiled from Africa. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. All different places. And he's writing to them and he says, you all together, all of you all, now through Jesus are a nation. A holy nation. The Greek word there is actually the word ethne, where we get our word ethnic. You're a holy ethnic. Not just a spiritual nation, but an embodied physical representation of God on earth. A holy ethnic. That's what he's saying. So what does that mean to be a holy ethnic? What does that look like? Um, well, what I think what it looks like is that with this new national identity that we've been given through Christ, this new nation state, if you will, this kingdom that we're part of, that Peter's describing to us, is borderless. You're not going to find it, although your, ma- your Bible might have an atlas or map in the back, you're not going to find the kingdom of God in a, in a, on a map or in an atlas. You never will. It's borderless. It's boundaryless. You're part of a new kingdom, really, is what I think some scholars have suggested would be a better way of putting it. Uh, you're literally a new people. You were once not a people. Do you hear that? You were once not a people, but now you are a people, the people of God. Brothers and sisters of Jesus, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, sons of daughters of God. And the key is that because of this kingdom, this new way of associating with one another, this new marker of your citizenship, you, that must, 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 must trump all other so-called citizenship markers that we stipulate and say give us worth in the world, which includes our political affiliations? Absolutely. This is why nationalism is such an aberration to the gospel. And I reject it. Absolutely. Um, it includes our marital status. You know, to, to say that you got to get, you know, come to church, get married. This was part of that Mars Hill kind of podcast is sort of not honoring the diversity of experiences we have in the world. Our sexual orientation, it includes uh, whether you're a homeowner, a renter, or you're unhoused. There are no homeowners in the kingdom of God. To think that that is a status marker for you as a believer is just not, not good theology, I think. Uh, and so we tend, you know, it's the way we look at others, especially immigrants to our country. This has been true in the last year as we've, we've, talk, we've kind of gone through a season of kind of Asian hate because of COVID. And now we're in this month. We, we're in the uh, Hispanic Latino Latina Heritage Month. We're celebrating this together. And we, we continue to do that through each of these heritage months with a commitment to it at Bethany Northeast to learn from these theological traditions within God's kingdom um, within that community. And so that said, on this kind of moment, this note, there's a particular voice in the Latino community, a Latino theologian that I've been formed by, Justo Gonzalez, who's like one of the preeminent Latino theologians in America. He's a Cuban-American. Uh, and I got the chance to study with him for a semester in seminary. And he's a historian. And he once wrote about this, this issue of nation, nation uh, as, one of the, as one of the key theological issues of our time. Maybe the key. And this was back in the 80s. And you think of nationalism, the rise of it in this last five years. This is in his book, Santa Biblia. And this is what Justo said. For many of us, this is a direct quote, 
who have not come to this land as exiles. Remember, Peter, if you read the whole letter, is writing to a, a group of exiles, people who've been exiled from their homeland. So for many of us, people who have not come here as exiles, remember, he's a Latino man, who even, whose ancestors have lived here for generations, many in their second, third, and fourth generations of their families, they too see themselves as exiles. He goes on, he says, uh, you apply for a job. Your papers are scrutinized with particular care just because you look different. That might have been your experience. Uh, or you sound different. You take any form of public transportation, especially if it's north of, just north of the border. And if you're not well-dressed, you just might be asked for your papers. You might be detained. And this, by the way, doesn't happen just north of the border. It happens in our, up in Mount Vernon, Burlington. Uh, you know, if you, you might be detained. If you don't have just the right papers at just the right time, you'll be deported with not so much as a phone call to your own family. And this is why he says Hispanic theology, and by the way, this is a theological issue, not a political issue, I'm saying here. This is a theological issue, deeply. This is why Hispanic theology in the United States, from its very inception, has been so concerned with the issues of migration, exile, alienness, and nation. So Peter is reminding us, the church of Jesus <laughs> we are a new kingdom. You're, you were once not a people. And now you are a new people, holy ethne. Not defined by your papers, your politics, your place of origin. And as soon as we begin thinking that, as, as soon as we think there's something special about us, you know, uh, <laughs> the doctrine of discovery. We think... This text reads us and challenges us to rethink. And also remember that we have been radically redefined by Jesus, by Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection. So the point here is, is wherever you're from, whatever your origin story, those identifying markers are very important to this church, to me, as one of your pastors, that give us a sense of who you are, of your story, of your journey, of your struggles, of your joys. They inform our community. That's also why we celebrate these Heritage Months. We want to press into the diversity and the beauty of this body and of God's kingdom. We want to celebrate that and share life. But listen to this. It's not despite our difference that we share life. It's in our difference that we share life. Pressing into difference and saying we can learn from difference. We can push into difference. We can be challenged by difference. We can hold difference. And here's the key. The new kingdom is intended to surpass all of those differences in its values, its significance, and its role in our lives. There are values in the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, that surpass all the things we value. Justice, mercy, love, healing. There's other values as well. Those are just a few. Those amongst the other values that you might read about in scripture are the values that God's kin, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, must, must, must be committed to. If we want to see the church have, you know, influence in the world. We are a holy ethnic. We're bound together with people who look, talk, believe very different than we do. And that's God's vision for his people. That's number one. Here's number two. We're a new family as well. It's related to the holy ethne, but it's a little different. In chapter 1, verse 17, Peter says he refers to God as his father, our father. It's a very big deal for a Jew to call God father. Uh, he also talks about brotherly love in this chapter. He, talks, he mentions new birth. Remember that? We're born again. And many of us, most of us, many of us, were fortunate to be born into a family. Some of us were adopted, and that's 
a big part of our journey. We're still unraveling threads in that story. Uh, Some of us are estranged from our parents. I once was, and that's been, there's been healing as part of that story in the recent years. Uh, But the key is (laughs) that we're each part of a family, though it may look different for each of us as well. And we're at different points in that journey with our family. And yet, as Peter says, with God as our father, as children of God, when we're born again, we're brought into a new family. It's not that our family of origin is irrelevant, but that we're now brothers and sisters of Christ, sons and daughters of God. We are, we're family. This is why with the Schmitz, we invited them up and I asked you questions. We're, they want to say, hey, well, I'm family with you. We got a great family here. And we want to have a, a greater family. And uh, that was a big deal <laughs> back then, maybe even now like joining the church, publicly declaring we want to press in. It was a big deal in those days. People would have been disowned completely for what the Schmitz just did. Completely disowned, especially in parts of the Muslim world, in East Africa, Asia, the Middle East. That still happens today. People lose connection to their family because of their commitment to the family of God. So Peter encourages us, reads us, and the text reads us, challenges us, and, and says that those of us who have pressed never considered this too. We have family here. We think of family as my kids, my spouse. You're going to have a family dinner today for Marie and her birthday. That's family, right? I never thought of John Berksham as my brother. <laughs> Tom and Beth is my brother and sister. Maybe not going back the rows. This is a big deal for us. It pushes us. It challenges us. No matter your family of origin story. And so I want to challenge us as a church, a local church, this particular local church for a moment. Hear me in love, please. Because I often hear one of the primary reasons people join our local church is because this community, because their friends are here. This is where your community is, your tribe, you know? And that's good. That's not a bad thing. You know, multiple generations of your family attending Bethany, that's a beautiful thing, right? I love hearing about those connections. I love seeing those connections. I love seeing how they change lives. But... This text challenges our thinking in that area as well. How we associate to the the local church in a different frame or how we might. It challenges our notion of relationship and what relationships God values. It challenges our way we look at friendship. It challenges how we imagine we might join God in mission and bringing hope and healing to the world, to all of God's family, those that would never darken the so-called door of the church. People who would consider themselves rejected by God because of what they've done in life or failed to do. This text challenges us to, uh, in some sense, look at our idea of family and all the relationships corresponding to that differently. And it's also profoundly good news because God offers a radical redefinition of what that means for us. In Jesus, you have a new family. That's the gospel. We get to declare that on the street corners, in our neighborhoods. As a church, we've been given a profound calling to be that family, to be a context for healing, and to offer that healing in the, the places that we live and we, we, we move with unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. There are no conditions on being part of God's family. Not even, I will just say this, not even a profession of faith. Jesus invites all of his followers to belong. I mean, look at the life of Peter who wrote this letter. Did he really believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? This is the guy who sold Jesus out. And yet Jesus says, come, follow me. Lead my church. I don't know if Peter got the entire story. It's, 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 
It's insane to me that he might someday be at the gates of heaven. I don't know if he understands it. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We're members of a new family. And then finally, Peter says, we're living stones in a spiritual temple. This is verse 5, chapter 2. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note that Peter's audience would have been very familiar with the idea of a temple. We're not so much, so I want to unpack this for just a few moments. Peter's Jewish audience especially, but even the Roman audience, there was temples in the pagan world, all over the pagan world, and that's where you went and encountered God. So the, the Jewish audience, the Roman audience, they would have often taken pilgrimage to these places. These were important, significant places where they believed, especially the Jewish temple, that, that though God is omnipresent, they have that theology, God's everywhere at all times, God's the creator of heaven and earth. God also inhabits that temple in a, in a special new way. That God was there in a unique way. So they go there on pilgrimage. This is most of the Psalms, the, the songs of ascent that you read in the, the Psalms. Psalm 121, I, look my, I lift my eyes up to the hills. These songs, they'd sing them as they go up to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And they'd go into the temple and they'd offer sacrifice and the priests would be there. And they, they would, they'd pray and they'd, they'd sing the old songs and they'd sit in silence in, the, in awe of God. I mean, if you've ever been to a cathedral, that's probably the closest. Bethany's Green Lake Sanctuary is like the closest you might get in an evangelical setting to like this kind of an awe experience inside of a space. You know, St. James Cathedral downtown, if you've ever been to Taze or Compline. But here's the deal. Jesus enters on the scene. Peter followed Jesus, and he, guess what he says? <laughs> Goodbye, temple. Bye. I, I, you know, he grew up going to the temple. I loved being in the temple as a kid. Don't need a temple anymore. And this is the debate Jesus had in John 4 with the woman at the well, uh, who didn't believe because of who she was, her family story. Talk about a family story that's been broken. Because of her ethnic identity, a Samaritan woman, her citizenship, didn't believe she had anything to offer to God. And so she didn't believe she could go to the temple, had never really been to the temple because of who she was, how she was defined. So she was on a separate mountain, separated from that holy other experience. And what does Jesus say to her? He declares God's truth to her. He says in response, John 4, 21, believe me, daughter. How about that for family language? The hour is coming when we will worship the Father. There it is again. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There's no need to go to Jerusalem. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's indeed here. And then he offers her living water. They're worshiping right there at the well, at Jacob's well. And what I think he's saying to her very unambiguously is that there's no longer a need for the temple. There's not a need for a physical space to encounter God as good as physical spaces are at times for us. Because in fact, he was the embodiment of the temple. He was the temple. He was the presence of the living God. Emmanuel, God with us. And so what that means by proxy for us as the local church, as the body of Christ, if you are I'm going with this, logic. Community matters. <laughs> it's impossible to be an individual Christian. It is impossible for that to be. And so how does that look? Let me just give you the practicals real quick, what that means. I mean, uh, 
because I told you I'd do this <laughs> real quickly here. A few practicals. First, I think what Jesus is pressing us to think about is we have to consider what it might mean in terms of our rhythms, our, this emphasis on you're, you're a spiritual temple, you're, you're a, a holy people, on our rhythms and the context for our gatherings. We've moved back into physical and person gatherings. We have some online gatherings. Even with those, we need to change our mindset about the church. I've heard from people all year that Zoom just doesn't work for them. I get in practical terms it doesn't work for them, but that doesn't mean that church doesn't work for you. It can't mean that because church is not a place or a time in the week or even a, a platform that we use. It's not a space. You don't go to church like you go to a Seahawks game, friends. You are the church. Church is a, is a certain set of relationships. It always has been, always will be. And if you need that to change, this might not be the church for you. I'm sorry. We need to start forming or maybe getting back to being part of smaller communities, friends, in, 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 in the wake of COVID. Outside of Sunday, some of you have been doing that really well this year. And I want to honor you for that. Thank you for that. Pressing into relationship when it's been hard to, to press into relationship. In the absence of even your pastors doing it. I confess that it's been difficult for me. I don't have a lot of bandwidth sometimes for relationship. I can go deep with a few. It's hard for me to go deep with a many. So thank you for those that have gone deep with those in your context. But we need to think, rethink, be creative about how we go deep in relationship with each other. And remember point two, not just with those that you consider friends, your people. Remember point two here, <laughs> maybe with those that you don't know, don't like, don't consider friends. I love that Bill Wilkins quote from Lord of the Rings where he says, I don't know half of you, half as well as I should like, and I don't like, I like less than half of you, half as well you deserve. <laughs> I think there's a, a bit of humorous honesty in that that we could learn from from Bilbo. We have to agree to and commit to be being cemented together with others, even those we don't like that much. It could be in formal ways through small groups. It could be by joining an existing group if you don't have the energy to form one. It could be informal ways by just walking up to somebody here. Going out over your skis, this could be a really hard invitation for you. Uh, very vulnerable. Making a conscious decision to move out of your own comfort zone uh, and say, hey, my name's Jack, and <laughs> we're part of the same body, and I'm convicted by this sermon, and what's your name? And beginning the conversation, it might be a surface-level thing, and then moving in the direction of going deeper. But we have to do that. That's holy work. That's what it means to be the church. That's number one. Number two, application. These last two are quick. We're also being called to love one another deeply, deeply from the heart. Did you hear that in chapter 1, verse 22? Peter says, practice genuine mutual love. Love one another deeply from the heart. The ESV translation <laughs> says earnestly there. Uh, and I just have to tell you something. I was so surprised studying this week. I looked up that word in my Greek Bible program. And by the way, I don't want you to think I'm studying the Greek every week. I actually have a Bible program. So I usually just push a button. And I'm, honestly, most of the weeks. So <laughs> one of the weeks I cursed over this word and up pops this revelation to me. Because when I looked at that word earnestly, deeply, that word, I was so stunned because it's a word that's used only one other time in the entire Bible, the entire New Testament, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says there that Jesus prayed earnestly with so much love, so much earnest, deepness, depth, that drops of blood fell from his brow. Literally, that word means to be stretched to the limit, to be strained 
I mean, what a revelation, right? To think of this. Because what Peter is saying when he says love one another deeply, he's not talking fuzzy kumbaya love, nor is he really talking about the love of friendship. He's talking about the love, the stretching love of suffering. As good as friendship love is, as good as marriage love is, as good as all those other loves are, he's talking about the deep stretching love of suffering. And you talk about a word for us after a year and more of suffering collectively. Think of how this applies to us as a church because Jesus, (laughs) he's doing this thing himself, suffering on our behalf so we don't have to suffer, taking on the sin of the world, of the cosmos, so we don't have to. But what about us? What does that look like to be stretched and suffer in love? Well, I think it's significant that Peter's writing to this group, this motley group, like I said, of Jews and Gentiles. People who had very different cultures, were very different, had different values and beliefs, different places of different politics, and different jealousies. He names this in chapter one, chapter two, I'm sorry, where he names, he talks about malice, the presence of malice, deceit, slander, and bitterness in this community. (laughs) He's saying there, I think, unambiguously, that the Christian community must be committed to loving one another, even in the midst of the darkness of their own hearts. I mean, whether they're living or you're living with a sense of underlying cynicism or anger, or you have bitterness. Some of you are feeling bitterness right now towards someone in your life. Could be your spouse. Could be a parent who's failed you. Could be a sibling. Um, could be to God. Could it be, could it be to me. And, and Paul, Peter is saying, um, love deeply. Be stretched through that. Love through those things. This is love that is willing to go to the limits and beyond. This is love that is willing to experience strain, love that, is, that pushes through conflict and the confession and then beyond confession to forgiveness and ultimately the reconciliation. That is the trajectory of love in the Bible. That's what it means to be pulled and stretched and strained. That's the kind of love we're called to as followers of Christ. That's the love of the gospel. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. One last application, if you haven't had enough. But I think this is really significant. I have to say, you're a chosen people, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I talked at the beginning about what it looks like to be a community of hope. And this might be the most hopeful thing we can do right now as a community. You know, if that sounds familiar, it's this direct quote from the Exodus 19. God's gathered the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai. He's commissioning them to be his people. He's about to give them the Ten Commandments. And then say, your purpose of those commandments is not just to follow some rules and be good citizens. Your purpose, Exodus 19, is to spread light to the nations. You're a kingdom of priests. That's what a priest is, a light spreader. In the most basic sense of the word in the Bible, priests don't have holy hands. I don't have holy hands. If you come out of the Catholic tradition, that's not necessarily the the Bible's teaching. If I can just put this in practical terms, priests brought God to the people and they brought the people to God. Priests brought God to the people, they brought people to God. This was true then, this is true now. And 
Peter says, you don't have a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Priests had immediate access to God's presence. They were chosen from among the people to approach God on behalf of the people. And you are now a royal priesthood. And so what this means on a practical level is that we don't just sit around and sing, enjoy our relationships with one another, and listen to me yak, 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 as good as that is. But that's not our work as the church, not our essential work. Our essential work, you know, Paul talks about this in Ephesians, that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he's planned in advance for you to do. Our work, our purpose is to be a people of hope. And how one way we do that is a royal priesthood is we pray. We intercede. That's what priests did on a day-to-day basis. Priests were always praying. They were the prayer warriors of the Bible. They were the ones who were in the temple. Yes, offering sacrifice. Yes, leading worship. Yes, all the things that we do here on Sundays. But they were there to tell a different story, to represent God to the people and to present the people to God, which practically speaking as prayer warriors, as intercessions, that means praying for friends and neighbors. When you don't see them, when it looks like maybe they've left and you're not sure why, they've been hurt by the church, they're just wounded. Praying for the poor, as priests did. Those without family, interceding for the exile and the stranger, praying for your leaders. Priests always prayed for their leaders and even priests prayed for their enemies. And for Samuel, you know, this is a beautiful moment. Samuel was a priest. He says to Saul, talk about a train wreck of a human being who's a king. He says to Saul, tries to kill David. Remember Saul? Remember Saul? Far be it from me to sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, Saul. That's the theology of praying for your enemies. When you're hurt, begin with the posture of prayer, the Bible says. So what is God inviting us to do? Let me ask a couple questions to wrap this up. Is there anyone in your life, in your sphere, that God is inviting you now to offer priestly work on behalf of? Who is it right now that maybe comes to mind that you know, that you know, that you know? You need to pray for. Could be an enemy, could be a friend, could be a pastor. I would cover your prayers. Silas would cover your prayers. But you know that you know you know you've been called to this work. It is a work we're called to. Prayer doesn't just begin the work, it is the work. And then Remember, we're a new holy nation, a holy ethne. Who is it in your life, in this community perhaps, you, you don't know? You don't know that you don't know that maybe God is bringing into your life to be a priest unto you. To bring God's healing and hope into your life, to comfort you, to be strength for you. I love that image of Moses having his arms held up by Aaron his brother Aaron, on the mountaintop because he was so tired. If you're tired, would you allow somebody to be strength to you? Might we learn, friends, how to receive and to give God's work of hope in other people's lives? Might we be the kind of community for such a time as this 
in our life together that learns how to offer healing and hope through our bonds of radical love and also people who are committed to representing Christ to the world and presenting the world to God.